Titus is a welcome to reasonable and necessary. It says premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Influence Claim. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaporis, and on today's episode, we're talking about how the NDIS can better support people who have complex needs. To help us work through these issues, I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Forbes, Advocacy Manager at Valid. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Now, can I just start this term, complex? What do we mean by complex participants? Well, the, the NDIS itself doesn't exactly talk about people as if they were complex or if they weren't complex. It's more about looking at what sort of complexity level it is to get people's services and other supports working really well for them. So what would it take to make sure that everything came together in a way that made it possible for someone to have an ordinary life? And I guess the way that the NDIS has um, split participants up is between people who they say would be considered uh, the right people for the general or supported pathway, that's what they call it, or people that would be right for the complex needs pathway. So it's really about how things would come together and therefore what sort of expertise people might need to assist a participant to do really well with their NDIS funding. And this idea of a complex pathway, it's not something that was there from the start, was it? It was something that the NDIS sort of realised was needed after a bit of advocacy and a bit of bit of jumping up and down from advocates saying this isn't really working for our group. Uh, look, I think in some ways that's true. They've certainly done some recent work around um, making it really much clearer about what the... Um, complex pathway should do differently than what, say, the general pathway would do. Uh, I think uh, certainly the agency has learned some lessons from the trial they did on the general pathway, um, which um, did seem to provide some improvements for that group of people. Um, They had some really good feedback about how well that worked. Uh, And in terms of the complex pathway, the agency has had a, a sort of a two-stream um, two process so that people who are um, in the general group um, from, the, from the beginning of the rollout would work with a local area coordinator and people who were um, considered as having more complex needs would have their NDIS planning meeting um, and other contact with a planner that's employed directly by the agency, so by the NDIA itself. So there has been, from the beginning of rollout, sort of two different processes. Um, But the new pathway that the agency has been working on um, gives much more detail and puts a lot more improvements in place, uh, particularly around the expertise of people from the agency who will be working with people who have more complex support needs. Yeah, and that's really important, isn't it, that that the people that are doing the plans understand the particular um, needs of that person. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have had some um, uh, reports from both participants and families 
and even services um, to our service that have said, um, you know, uh, the planner asked um, how long the person would have Down syndrome for um, and whether it was likely that they wouldn't have Down syndrome in the future. And uh, I imagine that your listeners, George, understand that Down syndrome is a condition that people are born with um, that doesn't go away. Um, But that's not to say that people don't over time um, develop a whole range of new skills and new possibilities that they won't find paid work or a home of their own. Um, Certainly their situation might improve um, and their outcomes might improve, uh, improve. Um, But in terms of their condition, um, uh, Down syndrome is going to always be there. So those kinds of questions from uh, planners are a worry because it tells us that um, planners aren't necessarily getting all of the information they need about different types of disabilities, how they might impact on an individual. And I think particularly for the people that Valid works with the most, which are Um, adults with intellectual disabilities who also have other diagnoses. So they might also have autism, uh, a mental health diagnosis, a physical disability. Um, They may have, you know, four or five different diagnoses. And how those um, different types of disability needs intersect is where the complexity really sets in. So we need planners who can understand how a person would have wraparound supports in an integrated way uh, to make sure that people's uh, needs are met holistically. Nobody is the sum of their diagnoses. And uh, we need planners to understand both what um, people's um, diagnosis might mean but also not to make assumptions about therefore what the person would do with their time. And we have seen a bit of that too, that people with intellectual disability are expected to exist in groups. They live in groups, they go to groups during the week and on weekends sometimes they go to more groups. And um, it's really important that planners understand that people with intellectual disabilities want the same ordinary things that everyone else wants. Um, And we need uh, the agency itself to be, you know, to have the kind of expertise and training to understand what really good practice looks like um, in the field so that they they don't ask those kinds of questions or they don't put their assumptions around what might be possible for an individual. I I absolutely agree with you. And I also think that um, there's also an opportunity for the person with a disability themselves to think differently about their life with the NDIS and for uh, a lot of people they don't realise that they they don't have to necessarily continue living in a group home or they might not necessarily need to continue doing a, a day service that they don't like. Um, it's these kinds of opportunities that the NDIS should be offering people um, who Currently, they they might not be aware of that. And your role as an advocate, can you tell us about how you help people with uh, disabilities in terms of their access to the NDIS? Uh, Sure. So there's a range of ways that we do that. Um, We have uh, 10 people in our individual advocacy team. Uh, and we take calls every day, uh, many, many calls from people who are looking for assistance around the NDIS. 
So those, um, sometimes they're just general questions. Um, what is a support coordinator? Those kinds of questions. Or how do I choose a support coordinator? Um, but also it's um, people bringing um, quite serious problems um, to us um, to look for some help. So they might be around eligibility, um, whether the person can get access to the scheme. Um, but for most of the people we support, it's really about um, a failure to understand um, how people's needs might be met with their NDIS plan. So maybe they didn't get enough funding in their plan um, or they don't know how to use that funding effectively. Um, those would be the kinds of queries that people bring to us often. And I suppose right at the really difficult end of things, we would get calls from um, people who are stuck in prison. Um, they don't need to be there anymore, but they can't leave because they can't find accommodation um, and they can't get a service provider who's willing to work with them just because there's just not enough services around to meet all of the needs. So we're seeing um, issues across the board from um, reasonably understandable and minor um, concerns people have um, and some pretty serious um, service fails that are leaving people in very difficult situations. So uh, really for us, it's about um, working with that individual person to understand exactly what they want and need, um, bringing in other people that the person trusts um, and that can be helpful and understand what the problem is. And then we work through what the possible solutions would be and we try our best to bring people um, to a different skill level in terms of their own advocacy by the time um, that the problem is resolved so they feel more confident. Um, one of the more significant um, pieces of work that we're doing at the moment is supporting people who live in Victorian government specialist disability accommodation. Um, who don't have uh, any unpaid people at all in their life um, and who need someone independent, so who isn't providing services to them now, to help them at their NDIS planning meeting, to um, express what they want, um, to um, articulate their goals and maybe to make some changes. Um, and that is one of the really exciting parts of our job at the moment is having those kinds of conversations that you were mentioning earlier, George, around, well, what if you wanted to move? Have you thought about it? This is your chance to really set that as a goal and to have people start working seriously on getting you that outcome. And for most of the people that we support with that process, people without family, they are people that have um, usually lived a very long time in um, old style institutions and maybe have only been living in a group home for 10 or 15 years and in that time really haven't had the opportunity to meet new people, to get a job, to um, go out with a friend on the weekend to catch a movie with support that they choose. For many people these are brand new ideas that really haven't been possible. So a lot of our work is about giving people examples of what other people are starting to do with their NDIS funding. And I think that's one of the really exciting things is um, because the NDIS is a national scheme, people are seeing examples from other people just like them all across Australia who are starting to do some really exciting and new things. They are starting to live in their own place. They've moved in with a partner. Um, and for some people and their families, that has been unimaginable. Um, but now people are starting to see why well, other people are doing it um, and they can see real life examples um, as people are starting to 
publish their success stories around the place online um, and elsewhere and start talking about it more in peer groups, um, people are getting excited. And we're certainly seeing that um, some of the work Valid does with running peer action groups where people with disabilities and other people who are interested in disability rights come together in a local area and talk about how they might assist each other to achieve goals, but also how they might improve um, uh, access to the community in their own local area. And um, they are starting to talk with each other about the kinds of goals they have in their NDIS plans and helping each other with those, but also challenging each other with even bigger ideas about how they might take it further year to year, which is really exciting. And I, I really relate to what you said around the fact that the people who are wanting to uh, effectively do something that they've never done before. Um, and I'm thinking that when we first envisaged the NDIS, one thing that we envisaged was the end of group homes and uh, the idea that people could live in a community in an ordinary house wherever they sort of felt um, was their community or um, with a friend or with whoever they, they partners, whoever they choose. And it sounds like we're starting to see a little bit of that, not a lot, but some of that from what you've said. Look, I think we're seeing both. I see. I think we're seeing some situations where people are moving into a more ordinary arrangement um, where they might uh, live with a friend or live with a partner, just like you said. Um, we're also seeing um, a lot of effort um, put toward um, uh, organisations uh, and developers building brand new group-based models um, and then inviting participants in. And I'm not sure any of us imagined that that was um, going to be the way that housing um, and the NDIS would happen. Um, I was certainly very hopeful that um, there would be um, a, a really strong focus around community living and helping people to find um, a house that worked well for them um, and then building the supports around that. Um, it's been a really long time that people have had to live in a particular place in order to receive the supports that they needed and the NDIS is supposed to be about changing that. I think um, all of that is possible for um, people but it relies on housing and that means that we have to get uh, affordable housing, all different kinds, made available to people with disabilities. That means that we need more social housing and uh, a range of other options that people need to be able to buy their own home and then bring the supports in if that's what works best for them. Um, we don't want to see uh, uh, you know, a whole another generation of people whose only option is to live in uh, a place where it's the only place that they can get those supports. People should be able to move around and take their supports with them, change their arrangements as it suits them. And we don't want anyone trapped in a particular property type because that's the only way that they can get the supports that they need. That doesn't work. It's never worked. Um, and it's not what um, people tell us that they want. Absolutely. To take it back to uh, complexity and the NDIS, um, I'm hearing that you've said there have been some good examples. What, what, what are some situations that you've seen where it's been really obvious to you that uh, the NDIS, how it's been implemented, has 
not worked terribly well for people with complexity or who might be seen as having not complex needs? Uh, well, certainly um, it starts sort of right at the beginning of the process. So um, does the planner really understand the number of supports that you need and how those supports will work together? So uh, what seems like a minor thing, like do you have enough support coordination hours in your plan to achieve your goals if you need that support coordinator to be at your care team meetings or at your multidisciplinary um, therapy meetings to drive those meetings and make sure that each and every person involved is working toward the outcomes in the way that the evidence is telling everyone it needs to. Um, and if you don't have enough coordination, maybe the wheels fall off. That, that's really interesting because um, I remember working in advocacy that we um, had this idea of the case manager, right, that we would call, so we'd ring the DHS case manager and they would not necessarily always do a great job, but you knew that they were um, effectively there to do what hopefully needed to be done, um, regardless of whether that person had funding or didn't have funding. Um, the NDIS has said, we don't do case management anymore, we do um, support coordination, and it seems that the new world of support coordination doesn't necessarily fit that well with people who are complex? Well, certainly we've seen a lot of problems with support coordination and it's probably uh, one of the um, uh, top three reasons that people would call us with a problem around our NDIS plan. So there are two types of support coordinators. There's a support coordinator that someone who maybe is learning about their NDIS plan um, and is building their own capacity to make more decisions around how their plan will be implemented and maybe over um, the first year or a few years of help from a support coordinator will move on to um, be able to self-direct their supports under the NDIS. They won't need a support coordinator anymore. Um, they might need a support coordinator to come back in at a certain point and help them because they're moving out of home and they need um, some more coordination for 12 months. But over the long term, they're not going to need a support coordinator every year. That's really the design of the way that that particular type of support coordination works. And then there's specialist support coordination, um, which is supposed to be um, delivered by someone with an allied health qualification. Uh, and they have a much more intensive role um, in providing the type of coordination that you might compare to what people might have had um, under what used to be called case management. But the problem seems to be that support coordinators are often unsure of where their role begins and ends. So they're not sure when the NDIS tells them that their part of their job is to help a person manage a crisis well, does that mean if my crisis happens on the weekend that I have someone I can call who'll come? Uh, it doesn't seem like it means that to most service providers, um, but to people who've had um, access to particularly what used to be called intensive case management in the past, um, that might have been something that they had access to, someone on call who can jump in and assist them with something. 
Um, and we haven't really seen um, good published information for support coordinators or specialist support coordinators from the NDIS that provides really clear and detailed guidance to both um, participants and also to support coordinators. So there has been lots of confusion um, and we've seen uh, uh, an absolute bucket load of it in our work of people just not knowing what my support coordinator should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and we get lots of calls from support coordinators who themselves aren't sure um, where their role starts and finishes. So. Um, we definitely um, are happy to hear that the um, NDIA is going to do um, some more work around um, clarifying the role of the support coordinator, um, providing some more training around support coordination um, so that people are really clear on both what to expect um, and also those, so that support coordinators are really clear on um, just exactly what they need to do. And that's really important when it comes to um, people who have um, really complex behaviour support needs and who do need a team of people working around them to make sure that they can have an ordinary life. You really do need someone there who understands best practice, who understands how to gather evidence, who can interpret those things, who can pull together the information for the progress reports in a way that really clearly explains what's happened, what's worked, what all the therapists have done, what they say is needed for the next 12 months. You need a really clever operator to be able to do that role really well for a person who needs 24 seven intensive support. And you also need someone who's there for the journey, yeah? So I, I can imagine that for people who have complex behavior support needs, that it takes a while to work out what are the what makes a good day or what makes a bad day and um, that that can take months if not years sometimes yeah. to work out for the person and and some somehow they're not necessarily in that position where there's the the workforce that's there for the long haul. And, and I think you've picked up a really important point that some of the responses that we have seen that have been um, very difficult for people have been an expectation that things would improve very quickly. Um, and we know that the evidence says that it does take months, if not years, to really work very closely with someone um, who needs a lot of support to be well understood by the people supporting them. Um, and it takes a long time to work that out and make that really run well. So um, sometimes we've seen plans that um, have been three-month plans and the, um, the person has been told that um, you have to reduce your two-to-one support. So you might have had two support workers um, for your safety um, in the community to make sure that um, you can do the things you need to do without um, putting yourself in harm's way and um, the NDIA might say you've got three months to bring that back down to having only one worker in the community. Um, and that's not always realistic. Um, and really we need to be able to um, give the time we need to be able to figure out what combination of supports in what setting and what context is gonna work really well for them. Um, and the, one of the other big issues we've seen is um, where you've got people that know the person really well um, they might have been working with that person in a therapeutic role, like they might be a speech therapist, 
Um, and they've got some really good history with that person, um, really good rapport, and they've, they've made some recommendations around what the person might need in terms of communication support that isn't supported by the NDIS when the plan comes back. And if we know one thing about people with complex behaviour support needs, it's that getting to the bottom of um, how other people can understand their communication is one of the most fundamental needs people have. Um, and when their communication, um, uh, when they're being heard well by people around them, um, people tend to have less harmful things going on. So it is really important um, moving forward that we have uh, a better way of being able to see what combination of things works for people and let people try things out and give them time. Give them time to see what's working and what's not working and then try something else and give that some time too. We can't rush change for people that have been in the types of settings that a lot of these people have lived in, which is very, very long periods of seclusion and restraint and they haven't really had the freedom to pursue their goals in the community. And now that they do, that's going to take some time until we figure out exactly how that's going to work best for that person. So we don't want to see an expectation that's unrealistic put on someone who needs a lot of time um, to figure things out. And is the NDIS or the NDI uh, listening and aware of these? I I definitely think they're aware of them. Um, Certainly um, we have a lot of conversations um, with uh, staff um, and management at the NDIA. We sit on, um, Valid sits on a range of um, state and federal working groups and committees to give um, the kinds of feedback and solutions um, that we're hearing from people would work best. Uh, And uh, they're definitely engaged in terms of thinking about um, what would work better. And they're making lots of changes um, all the time to try and uh, work out what would be better for people. Um, And we have seen some examples where um, the NDI have given um, people quite a long period in order to um, try some different things and um, to see what works. And um, we hope to see more of that. Um, so that uh, we can we can try some things with people that um, that we know are based in some good evidence. And there's lots of examples of um, different types of uh, service models or combinations of supports that have worked really well for people who do have really complex behaviour support needs. Um, and we'd like to see more uh, more attention from the NDI around doing more of what we know works really well for people. We don't need to do a lot of guessing. Um, we've we've been on this train for um, decades. There's lots of good evidence out there about what works well for people, um, and uh, we we need to be able to see those kinds of evidence-based strategies funded fully, so that people have a real shot at being able to reach their goals. Do you have any advice for people who may have complex needs or and their families and people that are supporting them around? Um, how did that the most out of the NDIS? Definitely. I think um, uh, one of the things that um, is helpful for people um, is to think about who could help them. So doing it alone is not a great idea. Um, there's a lot of um, information that um, can be really difficult to understand about how the NDIS works. Um, and uh, really it helps to have people who can um, guide you through the process 
um, and help you learn how to weigh up the decisions around what you should do. So um, it's really important that people are in charge of making the decisions about their life. And um, even for people who um, don't use verbal communication, use other types of communication, maybe they use gestures or maybe they indicate that they don't want a cup of coffee because they push that cup of coffee away from when you offer it to them. There might be any number of ways that people are telling us about their decisions and it's really important that people have support from people that know them really well and who are committed over a period of time who can guide them through the process. So I guess tip number one is don't go it alone. Get help from people that you trust um, and um, ask those people whether they can help you um, through different parts of the process to make sure that um, you feel really confident that you've got everything um, in the right place and that you've got the information you need for the NDIS. Um, I think the um, second one would be around taking good records. It sounds really boring, but it's really important. If you're trying something new um, in the community and you're not sure if it's going to work uh, and you, uh, let's say you've started a new gym program and you um, are hoping that part of that Uh, process of going to the gym is that you might going to be meeting some new people so you're not just getting fit but you might want to meet some new people and really at the end of your plan period you want to be able to have um, good examples of whether that's helping you with that or not is going to the gym helping you meet new people or isn't it Um, if that's part of what you want it to do um, then you want to know whether the strategies that um, the people supporting you are using are working Um, And if they're not working, we need to make some changes. And if they are working, um, do you want to um, push that goal even further? Um, Do you want to have a role at the gym because you really like it? Um, And maybe you're thinking about getting some work there. Um, It could be any number of things. So keeping really good records about what's working. um, And it's really important that support coordinators are... um, setting up those um, ways to capture evidence um, and to um, be monitoring things throughout the year and then to be able to produce really good reports that show what's working and what's not working. Um, If you don't have those good records, you can get yourself into all kinds of trouble at the end of the plan period and not being able to get what you need for next year. And I guess the last one is about um, keeping your energy up. Um, that, That getting things right with your NDI's plan is going to take a while. We know from people's experience in the trial sites that year one, um, they didn't have too much confidence about how it was all working. Year two, people started to experiment a bit more with their supports and um, get out a bit more into their community. And by year three, people were starting to think about plan management and self-management. And certainly we've had um, uh, people with intellectual disability who over a few plans have decided they're going to try a little bit of self-management or a of plan management and that's really exciting to see and we'd like to see more of that but uh, people have to be able to keep their energy up and uh, one of the uh, tools that we use at Valid to teach people about um, self-advocacy skills um, is that we think of um, our uh, advocacy um, energy in terms of batteries so if your batteries are flat um, then it's going to be really hard to get what you need Um, And that goes for anything in life. You need to have your batteries charged up so that you can be really effective. And uh, I think that's one of the things that we work on really hard, both for our individual advocates. We use that idea, charge your batteries. 
um, and it's the same for um, participants and um, family members and others who might be supporting people. You've really got to keep your energy levels up because uh, it, it's going to take uh, a long time of um, uh, improving things and uh, pushing for things that are going to work for people and to make sure that the NDIS is set up in a way that it works for everyone that it's meant to work with. Um, and so that people can get the outcomes that they want. Uh, the only way to do that is to keep your energy up and to um, see it as a, a long-haul project, to keep going. They're excellent tips. Can I add one more? Please. I, I think that talk to other people who uh, you admire in terms of what they've achieved and find out how they, how they got there because chances are they everything that you've been through and, and they can tell you some, some good ways of, of dealing with the issues that you're about to face. It's a, that's a really good tip, George, and I think um, we've seen some really good um, conversations happening where people are getting together to talk about tips and tricks and how they um, made things happen and um, it's one of the um, uh, best um, pieces of advice I think anybody could have is to talk to people who know. Thanks for the time, Sarah. No problem, George. Thanks. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Check out our Facebook page, which is at Building Better Lives. You can find all previous podcasts and transcripts. We also really love hearing from you, so please leave your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Until next time, stay well and reasonable.